Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today we are going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, Episode 5. I forget what the title is. Uh, Like last time, I'm going to just be going through the different storylines because, like I said before, I think that it's just easier to do it that way. So I'm going to be starting off with the Harfoot storyline, and I will be ending with the very controversial storyline with... Elrond and the dwarves. So, yeah, without further ado, let's jump right into it. All right, first, what happened with the Harfoot? So, we open, and uh, the Nori character is sitting with the stranger, and they're basically talking about all of the different ways that the Harfoots go when they're migrating. And, you know, she's kind of explaining what they do at each place. At one place, they hunt for snails, and I think she had mentioned another place with fruit. And she's basically kind of teaching him to talk and say words at this point. Then they decide to get up and start moving on their journey. And this was something that I actually really liked. So the the actress who's playing the Poppy character, she begins to sing. And I really liked this song. And they kind of zoom out and it's a map of Middle Earth and it shows this path that we're taking. So we're hearing this really nice song playing and, you know, they go through the Grey Marshes, which at this point are not yet the Dead Marshes because the War of the Last Alliance has not taken place yet. So they're going through there, you know, Frodo and Sam went through there. So that was that was nice to see a little bit of a, a crossover there, which I appreciated. I'm not really sure which direction they're going in. But they kind of end off with it, the the song that they wrote for the show, which includes Tolkien's line, not all who wander are lost. You know, that, that basic line that, of course, was so beautifully written, but now has been appropriated by too many Instagram women that has now become basic. But still love the line. Uh, I, I'm glad that they included it in there. And it ends off on that line, and we have the stranger who's kind of looking up at the moon. Now he's looking up at the moon and I think that that is significant because the very next scene we have these, uh, we finally get a look at this bald priestess lady who looks like Slim Shady. And now Slim Shady leans down and is kind of feeling the crater where the stranger landed originally in his meteor. And she's got these two women warriors with her. Now, apparently men don't do anything in this world. And she's got these two, like, warrior women with her, like, as her guard. And they have, like, a what looks like a moon on their shield. So I'm guessing that the, the two are are connected in some way like they're they have something to do with the moon and in the scene prior the stranger was looking up at the moon so again this kind of is friendly towards the theory that i had come up with before which was something that would be really cool i think for amazon to do and explore you know i say amazon i mean the writers of the rings of power so we know that the blue wizards they both come in the second age and there are different versions of their stories that we have. We have one version where both of them are evil and they start up cults. They, they lose their mission in a similar way to Saruman and they um, create cults in the East. And then there's another version of their story where they maintain their mission and they actually help defeat Sauron in a way that we just don't see. Uh, so because we have these two different versions of their stories, I thought it would be really cool for the writers of this show to split them and have 
one of the blue wizards be good and one of them be evil. So we kind of get both versions of the story in the show. And maybe, you know, they can be the foil to one another. So what I was thinking is, hey, maybe this bald lady is one of the blue wizards. Now, remember, their their names are Anatar. Oh, sorry, not Anatar. Come on. <laughs> Alatar and Palando. So again, might be really cool if you have Alatar be good and Palando be evil or vice versa. And the two of them could be be kind of fighting each other for control of the free peoples of the east of Middle Earth. I thought that that would be really cool. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't mind one of the blue wizards being a lady. They can do that for the show. It's, it's not, they are servants from the Valar. So it, it, I don't care that much what gender they are so that would be interesting if they decided to do that it seems maybe like the this priestess lady if she is one of the blue wizards that she arrived prior to the stranger obviously um so we'll see where that goes if not i think maybe she's just like a worshiper of morgoth and beyond that I, i don't have any speculation there i really hope it's that these are the blue wizards or at least the stranger is one of the blue wizards because i'm gonna be really upset if it's gandalf so yeah, bald lady, she seems upset maybe that she's missed the stranger, you know, because clearly she's seeing that he was there and now he's not there anymore. Um, she turns around in a very disappointed manner. So we'll see where that goes. Going back to the Harfoots, they arrive in this forest and Poppy actually says a callback line to the Lord of the Rings. If you remember when Gimli is talking about Fangorn Forest and Merry and Pippin, he says, Fangorn, what madness drove them in there? And Poppy says something similar about the uh, Harfoot Collective. You know, she says, what madness drove them in here? So that was an interesting little callback line there. I've noticed that multiple times now. They, like they've said about the people of the Southlands, scattered, leaderless. You know, that's those are, they're recycling these quotes. So that's interesting. Um, they're in these woods, uh, the upper echelon of Harfoot society, these three old folks, you know, one of them is Sadak, and then there's these two old women that are very unkind. You know, one of the women suggests that they take the wheels from uh, Nori's family's train because they believe that somehow the stranger that they have with them is negatively affecting the forest that they're in because nothing seems to be growing at this time of year when things usually grow at that time of year. And that's pretty brutal. You know, it's like, it seems unnecessarily brutal to me. I could also see where like a wandering nomadic people could be very superstitious So I thought it was a little, you know, the cruelty of what they seem to be doing to Harfoots that break the rules just seems a little forced. So anyway, she's going and picking mushrooms and she's approached by Nori and Poppy and they're being chased by wolves all of a sudden. And the stranger saves them from the wolves. He does this kind of ground pound force push that sends the wolves flying. And that was cool to see. We have a definitely... You know, this is a powerful character. Definitely seems like maybe he could be a wizard of some sort. So also another point I found interesting is that he seemed drained by this act that he did, or at least injured by it. So very Tolkienian in the aspect of like powerful beings. Uh, You know, they, it takes a little bit out of them when they perform like a huge magical task. 
So that was an interesting point there. His forearm was like all scratched up from this this ground pound maneuver that he did. It looked very bruised. Uh, so I thought that that was interesting too. He's he's clearly very powerful, but at the same time, these these big moves are taxing, which uh, that's definitely you know that that's. That reminds me of Gandalf. You know, when you read The Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf, before fighting the Balrog, describes being drained, like his power being drained because of the maneuver of trying to hold it back behind the door. So that kind of, I, I, I made that connection there. And yeah, that's that's about it. Oh, there's this weird scene that we get where he's, it seems like he's got his forearm dipped in this little puddle because he's trying to maybe find some relief from the pain and he's whispering some kind of uh magical words i guess and he starts freezing the water and nori sticks her hand on his arm and her arm starts to freeze and then i guess she surprises him or wakes him up out of this trance and then he shoots her back um with no damage to her hand as far as I could see. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, th- I thought, I don't really know what to make of that scene other than the fact that maybe they're just trying to establish that he's getting used to enacting his sort of heavenly strength in this physical body that he's in. Uh, if, of course, this is one of the emissaries of the Valar. And yeah, that about wraps up that storyline. I, I My ruling on that is the, uh, I was not... As annoyed by the Harfoots this episode, I really thought the song was good. Um, I liked it a lot, and, you know, I'm curious to see who the stranger is. Really hope it's not Gandalf. Moving on to Arondir. So, with the Arondir storyline, we start off with Adar, and he's with one of the orcs. And, again, you know, I believe that Adar is the first of the corrupted uh, elves, to become orcs, and I think that that's why the orcs are calling him father. Um, So we get this shot of him, and he's staring into the sun, and he's just kind of taking it in, and then this orc comes up, and he basically makes the orc lift up his sleeve, and the orc's arm just starts cooking. Now, this is a little dramatic. I appreciate that they're leaning into the, the true lore fact that orcs do not like the sun, and that it does negatively affect them over a period of time. However, them, it's very dramatic, though, that they're just, they can't even stand it for like a second. You know, that seems to me like a little bit of a stretch of the lore. But anyway, so he he lifts his sleeve up, and the orcs, is just, his arm's burning, and he's like, what does it feel like? And the orc says it feels like fire. And then Adar says, you know, I wish you could feel it like I could feel it. I'm taking it in for a second because it's not going to be there anymore. Alluding to this plan to make Mordor into Mordor. We all know what eventually happens is uh, Mount Doom explodes and the ash blocks out the sun. So this is what he's referring to. But it also seems like maybe he's referring to not just a physical change of the world around him, but maybe even a change in himself as well. It seemed like he was alluding to that too, like talking about two things at once. I don't know what he could be talking about. Right now, to me, this is the most interesting character. I just would like him to, when we really find out what his story is, I really hope that it's something that could actually fit into the lore. So yeah, then he lets the orc go. And then we skip over to the folks 
of the Southlands who are taking shelter in the tower. And this is the tower that, you know, they're in where Adar had said, basically gave them an ultimatum last episode, said, uh, you know, surrender to me, surrender the tower to me, um, and you'll be spared. And the lady whose name in this moment I cannot even remember, she begins this speech. And something about this just kind of annoyed me, is where she's like, oh, I know I'm not the king you've been looking for, this this lady. And it was just like, something about this speech just took me out of it. I thought it was kind of corny, you know? Why would this person who was pretty much, you know, she's nobody amongst the people there, and now all of a sudden she's leading them and likening herself to a possible, like, king in that moment? I don't know, I just thought it was corny. But I guess, you know, she's with Arondir, so people are listening to the elf. She gives this speech basically telling everybody to stand and fight this enemy. And then the dude who was the kind of leading member of the community, I guess, the butcher guy, the, have you heard of him, lad? Have you heard of Sauron? That guy. Um, he interrupts her and he's like, guys, you know, we're not going to make it. Everybody come with me and let's go surrender to Adar. Uh, and half the people leave with him. And he's trying to get uh, Theo to go with him. And Theo doesn't go. So for once, uh, this young character, Theo, isn't annoying. And yeah, that's that's about the scene there. And then later we have this scene where Arondir is trying to teach Theo how to shoot a bow. And he gains his trust a little bit. They have a nice moment. Again, Theo is finally not being annoying. So Theo decides to open up to Arondir and show him that he has this thing, this Sauron sword. Theo's, or uh, Arondir is very disturbed and he immediately recognizes it as this thing that was on a mural on the wall, which I'm a little confused by because I was under the impression that the elves built this tower. Why would the elves have a tower with a mural on the wall that depicts what I guess is Sauron using that sword to execute a man? I, I didn't I didn't get that. Maybe I missed that one. Maybe the elves didn't construct that tower. Maybe it belonged to Sauron. I don't I don't know, but that just kind of didn't make sense to me. Uh, but we find out that this sword is a key to something. We don't know what the key is, but it's it's does something. I think if I had to come up with a theory, this is somehow this sword is whatever the key is is the key to controlling mount doom right the key to gaining access to its power or using it to terraform your environment essentially Uh, i think that is where they're going with this which all we know from the lore is that sauron was able to control the mountain somehow we you know, they don't give us any backstory on it. So this is them filling gaps with things like this sword is not from the lore. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I still, I wish I could, maybe I need to go back and rewatch because I was just confused as to why there was a mural literally right there on the wall. It was very convenient. And then we kind of get pulled out of there and we're, we see the people who left prior who had decided that they were going to surrender to Adar. They're marching up, and they uh, the butcher guy is offering himself up to Adar. And he says he pledges to serve him, but he calls him Sauron. And this is a 
interesting point where Adar, which clearly did not like what he said, goes up to him and slams him down on the ground and then tells him that his service requires some type of blood sacrifice and then hands him a knife. And he wants him to kill Theo's friend, whose name I'm also forgetting. So an interesting little point here. You know, we know that the Second Age is filled with dark forces manipulating men into human sacrifice of some kind. So this aspect, or at least the theme of it, does go, fits well with the lore. We don't know what happens after this scene. We don't know if the butcher guy does kill the kid. I'm assuming he does. It seemed seemed like that's the direction it was going in. But what we can tell from this scene is clearly exactly like I thought before, this character is not Sauron. Also, Sauron appears in a beautiful form. There's a great line uh, from Sam from the books where Sam is talking about how a servant of the enemy would appear fairer and feel fouler. Adar, you know, I'm not saying Adar is good, but he's certainly not in a beautiful, deceitful form. So never thought this guy was Sauron. And clearly he was very not happy to be called Sauron. I I believe that, once again, I, I think that he was the first elf to be corrupted by Morgoth. Now, going back into the Silmarillion, the elves wake up in the far east of the land. And they are living there before being discovered by the Valar in the Undying Lands. And Morgoth finds them first. And Morgoth kidnaps a, a group of elves and tortures and mutilates them and turns them into the first orcs. And that's where the race of the orcs come from. At least... Uh, in official decided canon. You know, Tolkien actually, it was a question that Tolkien wrestled with. There were multiple things. I don't, he, I don't think he liked the idea that there were creatures that had some level of agency that weren't redeemable. And I also don't think that he liked the idea that he had given Morgoth the ability to corrupt things that were already made by Iluvatar. Uh, but he never changed it in a meaningful way. So right, that's the origin story that we ended up getting, is that you know orcs are the result of the first corrupted elves. And we also have evidence, too, that Morgoth could turn men into orcs. Uh, and we know that Sauron made, um, did some crossbreeding with orcs and men. So th- that's kind of the, the construction that we've gotten of these characters. And I believe that... Uh, Adar is basically the orc prototype, like not fully transformed into another being yet. Uh, I think maybe that he had some some level of authority in, you know, uh, as maybe not a position of too much power, but I think that Adar was one of the first orcs, and for some reason he feels that he can be uh, Morgoth's successor. We don't have a whole lot of examples of elves turning evil, so this was one of my things with his character. I find him incredibly interesting, but the writers need to give me a serious, significant reason for why this gentleman is making the decision that he's making. Because, so all of the examples that we have of elves becoming evil are either for extremely unwise and short-sighted goals or under extreme duress, right? So uh, Maeglin is a great example. Maeglin desired Idril, right? He desired Idril. And he wanted to marry her, and he wanted to be the next ruler of Gondolin. And he believed that, well, he was tricked by Morgoth into believing that if he surrendered 
the location of Gondolin to Morgoth, that he could rule there, essentially, as Morgoth's vassal. And that was, obviously, that led to the fall of Gondolin. Again, bad actions produced by a very short-sighted elf there. And then other examples of elves going bad are are obscure texts that we kind of get about prisoners of war, you know, elves being taken in as thralls unto Morgoth, and then tortured and then they basically get spat out back into the population among their own kin to cause discord there so we do have these examples of elves going bad under extreme duress or some kind of just stupid thing because elves elves are aware of the powers of the world Right. They are aware that, especially at this point in the Second Age, you know, when you compare Sauron's power to that of Morgoth and to the Valar, Sauron is just a a footstool, dude. So I need to seriously understand the incentives and goals of an elf who would be aligning himself with Sauron or even trying to compete with Sauron in the Second Age. Like, I I just really hope that they thoroughly explain this character in a way that makes sense. So, yeah, that's that's my... I, I, I think, again, he's he was the first orc or something of that nature. And I believe that he is trying to compete with Sauron as the successor of Morgoth, which is not something that we have a canon example for, uh, but... I, I think if they properly explain to me the incentives, I can uh, I can be okay with that. I do find his character very interesting. So we'll see where that goes. Now, moving on. Now, jumping over to Numenor, we open up and we have a conversation between Isildur and Elendil. I really liked this because, you know, you watch this at first glance and you're like, man, Elendil is really being hard on his son for no reason. Like, it almost just seems harsh and a little forced. Isildur is trying to go on this journey to Middle-earth with Queen Muriel to help Galadriel in her mission to free the people of the Southlands. And Elendil is not letting Isildur go because Isildur has proven time and time again that he is willing to talk a good game about service, but he doesn't walk the walk. And when you've, like, at first you don't understand why Isildur is just, or uh, why Elendil is like, okay, you can't go. It seems like he's being harsh. But when you put it in the context of the fact that, hey, this is, they're doing some foreshadowing, folks. Like, this is the guy, you remember, who is not going to throw the ring in the fire. This is a guy who plays with loose morals when it comes down to it. Now, we love Isildur. He is, he does some great things in his life, but he ends in tragedy. So, I think that the writers really did a great job here preparing the uh, us to get to know the core of this character. So I, I liked that conversation a lot. Uh, and it also differentiates him from his father, who we know of Elendil that he was like the epitome of what a good Numenorean man should have should have been about service. He dies fighting in combat with Sauron in his physical form. You know, so this guy takes his service to the final bitter end. So I thought that that was a great, you know, bit of just differentiated father and son very well there in that 
in that little one conversation. So uh, Halbrand, moving on to Halbrand. After that discussion, we, we, we learned that Halbrand does not want to go back to Middle-earth, which is a problem for Galadriel because part of the draw uh, for this is the fact that they want to put someone in charge of the Southlanders who is friendly to Numenor. And Miriel does not want to make this trip without Halbrand being on board to go. So we kind of have a little bit of back and forth here where Halbrand is saying that he doesn't want to go. And then Galadriel says an interesting line here. Another one of those, like, Halbrand is Sauron friendly lines where she says, uh, Halbrand says that she used him to, to get what she wanted. And then she says, you know, I'm... I'm getting ready to bring Numenorean soldiers to pl- place a crown over your head in the Southlands. You know, some would say you used me. So I thought that was interesting there. You know, it's I, I don't think Halbrand is Sauron at this point, but a- another one of those, he's Sauron friendly line. Oh, and then Galadriel goes out and she's doing this soldier training scene. It was, I didn't like it. It was very marvel Um I have no problem with her being like kind of a superhuman swordsman, not to the point where it's ridiculous because, you know, the Noldor took losses to orcs, so they weren't perfect swordsmen. Uh, However, Galadriel is touched by the light of the Valar, so I don't mind her being like better than all the Numenorean normal men. Um, But it, it was a little bit overkill in this scene. It was just very, it was almost like it was filmed by like, you know, it looked like a Disney movie. She's not invincible. The Noldor elves are not invincible, so the, they shouldn't. You shouldn't be able to take on like six soldiers at once. But anyway, it, it wasn't. It's fine. You know, Galadriel is does have a certain power to her. So, uh, and then we get uh, he. We have Farazan talking to his son Kevin again. And he looks like he's sitting. I'm not sure. It looks like he's sitting in like a market or or something where Farazan likes to hang out, apparently. And Kevin is trying to convince his father to convince the queen not to go to Middle-earth. And he's doing it on behalf of Elendil's daughter, who, again, I think is going to help Sauron build his temple to Morgoth. And we we haven't clearly been given a reason for why Elendil's daughter doesn't want this expedition to middle earth to happen uh i don't understand why she's so emotional about it all you have to do is have like one scene where you know she's talking to her father and says i don't want you to go i'm worried but right now i don't know why she cares so much but anyway on behalf of this girl who he clearly likes he's going up to his father farazan and pleading with him to stop the queen from going and farazan again I, i loved the dialogue here because this dialogue made me perfectly aware of Farazan's objectives. And not just his objectives, but also his cunning. So I'm seeing this intrigue, another good bit of dialogue from uh, Tristan Gravel and his portrayal of Farazan, where he explains to Kevin that he wants this to take place. Because if they can put someone like Halbran on the throne over the Southlands... That will mean that there is a ruler there that is friendly to Numenor and would owe them a bunch of favors and they could take advantage of them economically. And we know that Numenor does this from the books. Now, they were doing this well before Farazan's time. So, you know, the timeline is messed up. But, you know, Numenor has been colonizing Middle-earth now for many years, at least 
canonically. But we're, I, I guess for the show, they're trying to portray that Numenor has not established their empire yet. So he, for the sake of empire building, wants this expedition to take place. And I, I liked that. I, I appreciated that because I want to see that from Sar- uh, from Farazan. I want to see that, amb- that blind ambition you know, uh, and, and get into the material of it. I'm okay with that. You know, some people don't want to hear that because it reminds them of like, what was Aragorn's tax policies, criticisms from George R. R. Martin. No, I want to see that in this case, because that's what Numenor did. You know, they took advantage of the middlemen of Middle Earth and they abused them for resources. So let's see that. Show me that. Make Numenor the bad guy. Numenor is supposed to be the bad guys. So let's see that happen. Okay, so Halbrand, you know, he has a conversation with Galadriel that finally convinces him to be okay with coming to Middle-earth, with taking up, again, we have the, uh, the reluctant king stereotype that is, that is archetype that's in so many different movies and stories. Galadriel convinces him. Halbrand explains to her that he had to do horrible things to be spared by an enemy and... But I'm still not sure where Halbrand came from and who exactly it was that spared him. So I, I guess they'll reveal that later. But apparently Halbrand had to do something very bad to be spared by some very bad people. And the implication is that it was Adar, I guess. Because at this moment you have this scene that's being crossed over with the people who left the the, the Southlanders who left the tower surrendering to Adar. So I'm assuming that it was Adar that he had to surrender to. But we're not clear on that. But anyway, they have this little bit of emotional exchange and Halbrand finally agrees to answer the call to unite the people. And they have this big dramatic exit scene where they're loading up on the boats. Um, Isildur, because, oh, I forgot to mention Kevin, because he's trying to stop this from happening because he likes Elendil's daughter so much. He tries to blow up one of the ships, and he succeeds, but also Isildur, who was trying to stow away on the ships because he wants to go so bad, he saves him, and I guess because Isildur saved him that he gets to go now. He's earned a place in this expedition, but the show really didn't properly explain that. It's like, Isildur's being told no the entire episode, and then all of a sudden, at the end of the episode, he's loading on to the ships with everybody. Uh, I don't feel like that was properly explained, but I just had to assume that because he saved Farazhan's son, that guaranteed him a spot on the ships to go. But, alright. Anyway, moving on. Alright, alright, alright. We're finally getting to it, folks. The most controversial bit of this week's episode. The Elrond storyline. And the revelation of the Mithril conspiracy. So, Doran is at dinner with the elves of Linden, and Celebrimbor is there as well. And they have this exchange. Um, it gets a little awkward over a table. Doran feels that the stone of the table has been disrespected and isn't being treated in a sacred manner and then we find out of course that that was a lie he was just messing with them and you know they they toast to the union of the two peoples and then we have this after dinner scene that is taking place between Gilgalad and Elrond and Gilgalad asks Elrond to quote some old story to him that Elrond insists is apocryphal and 
didn't actually happen, and uh, Gilgalad tells him to tell the story anyway. And he tells this story of apparently some great battle that took place on top of the Misty Mountains between an elf that had a heart as pure as Manway, who Manway is the king of the Valar in the Undying Lands. He is uh, Iluvatar's governor of Arda. There is an elf with a heart as pure as Manway that is fighting a Balrog on top of the Misty Mountains. And they are fighting over the preservation or destruction of a tree. And apparently in this tree holds, by legend, one of the lost Silmarils. And what happens is lightning strikes these these two as they both their powers are kind of the power of light and the power of darkness are converging on this tree and lightning strikes the tree and in that moment the powers converge and create this this material mithril uh which we we know of mithril right it's everybody should know what that is if you've read the books or seen the movies or anything you should recognize that and that is the original foundation of mithril Let's break this down. So, there's a couple things. Let's talk about the Silmarils for a second. The fate of the Silmarils. One of the Silmarils, there's three Silmarils. One of them is up in the sky with Elrond's father, Erendil. He has one of the Silmarils, and it has become a star. So that's one. Gone. The second Silmaril was thrown into the ocean. By Maglor. Uh, he couldn't take the burn of it on his hands. So he chucked it into the ocean. And it is somewhere at the bottom of the depths. No one knows where it is. And then the last Silmaril was went along with its carrier, Mithros. He uh, he hurled himself into the into the earth, into a great chasm. So he killed himself with this Silmaril in his hand. Um, and you know, people have made the Assumption that this Silmaril is now kind of moving and siphoning within the earth somewhere. So let's assume that this story about the tree that Gilgalad tells is true, which it's not. It's not in the lore at all. But if you were speculating, the only Silmaril that this could be is the is Mithros. Mithros's uh, Silmaril. You think maybe it got under the earth somehow and is up underneath one of the mountains. Highly unlikely. It's very far away from where Mithros would have killed himself. It, it just, he wasn't near the Misty Mountains. It just doesn't work, in my opinion. I think, you know, it's the same thing with the people who try to say that the Arkenstone is Mithros's Silmaril. Uh, I think the best assumption that you should make as a lore fan is to just assume that all of the Silmarils are gone. No longer accessible. So yeah, I wasn't a fan of this origin story of Mithril. You know, it, it just... The Silmarils are such a significant thing that to make it the backstory for something as... I mean, yes, of course, Mithril is special, but it was found in other places besides the Misty Mountains. So it wouldn't make sense for the Silmaril to be creating Mithril under the Misty Mountains and then uh, somehow also creating Mithril in Numenor as well because we know it was there too. So 
this whole origin story doesn't make sense from a canon perspective. Uh, you have to do some mental gymnastics to really be be like, oh, well, maybe it could have happened this way. Uh, no. So, yeah, that's that's one that's one thing there. And Gilgalad basically they end up telling Elrond. Celebrimbor and Gilgalad, um, they basically tell Elrond that the elves need whatever this thing was, this power that was produced by the crossing of the good and evil powers uh, with the light of the Silmaril into the mountain. They need this because it, it contains the light of the Valar, uh, because it had a, a Silmaril in there, in the, in the tree. And they need this because the world around them is decaying. The big golden tree that they had over there in Linden is rotting and they need all of this by the next spring or they're going to fade or they have to go to the undying lands and they believe that if they can get enough mithril together which contains the light of the valar which is ridiculous mithril does not contain the light of the valar that's not true then you're thinking like okay frodo his vest was he 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 has the light of the valar on his his vest you know that's ridiculous um mithril is strictly just a materialistic gain it's a beautiful metal and that's it you know there's no heavenly powers in it but they all have convinced themselves that in this story, that Mithril somehow has the light of a Silmaril in it because of this Balrog story. And if they can get enough of it, they can... I, I don't know what their plan is. Maybe, I mean, Celebrimbor is constructing... In the show, I, I'm just trying to think, like, what's the logic here? Are they going to melt it down and take a bath in it? Like, I, I, I don't understand what they plan to do with it or, or how they plan to get it get its essence into the elven population because their thesis is that their light is fading and that they need to get their the the light of the valar back into them in order to stop the land from decaying around them and i don't know i mean this is just it's out of left field it's not in the books the idea of it is there the reason why sauron is able to trick celebrimbor is because the elves can see that the land out uh, around them is slowly fading. And Sauron makes them believe uh, Gilgala doesn't fall for it. So this is kind of a breakage. If this whole thing is a lie conjured by Sauron, uh, we're breaking the lore because Gilgala is clearly falling for this lie and he does not fall for it in the books. Celebrimbor does. So, but but we do have, we do have a lore basis for the idea of trying to prevent decay. Uh, and that's, you know, Sauron promised Celebrimbor that they could make their lands look like Valinor. And he lies and says that he is an emissary of the Valar. And Celebrimbor falls for it. So the idea of preservation is there. The spirit of preservation, you know, I, I can at least say that about it. I don't like the tie-in with Mithril. You know, the two are mutually exclusive. Mithril never had anything to do with the idea of preservation beyond two of the three Elven Rings of Power being made from Mithril. So uh, that does happen. You know, I'll, I'll give it that. Uh, Galadriel's ring actually is is made from uh, Mithril. So maybe that'll come into play there. Uh, but I, I just... I'm really hoping that... Oh, and another thing too. The fact that all of a sudden it's 
we need this by spring or everything's going to rot. This is something that the decay goes over such a long period of time. I, I just, again, the whole like, we need this by next year, you know, is another kind of silly thing. Uh, they're trying to create this urgency. And I would like to assume that the show plans to reveal that really this is all Sauron in the shadows spinning lies and that the world isn't really decaying around them that fast. He's just making it look so with some kind of illusion or something. That can be forgivable for me. But yeah, that's that's the thing. I really, I didn't like that Mithril direction of the story and I'm hoping that they remedy it by making it all a lie because it just seems like something foolish that the elves shouldn't be falling for. You know, they should... Oh, and the the other bit about, like, a story that the elves have being apocryphal, but also taking place after the Silmarils have been removed from Morgoth's crown. You know, there are elves that should be in Linden at that moment that were alive during the the wars in Beleriand, you know, so there should be no stories that are apocryphal, you know, they should have literally dudes walking around that be like, oh, I, I remember that, or that didn't actually happen, you know, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be stories that people don't, like, can't really validate, so that was another thing that I thought was annoying, but yeah, so they, Gilgalad and Celebrimbor convince Elrond to talk Durin into allowing them access to the uh, Mithril. And that's kind of how the episode ends. So, yeah, that about wraps up my review. I feel torn on this one because I feel like, honestly, this was the best and worst episode at the same time. I thought, for the first time, I really felt into the dialogue, but also I didn't like a lot of the dialogue, if that makes sense, because I didn't. it was like... I thought, oh, if I was a, a viewer who didn't know the lore, uh, this this could be an interesting hook. But also, I do know the lore, and this is ridiculous. You know, so it's, it's kind of a back and forth there. Uh, but yeah, tell me what you thought. Did you like this episode? Did you hate this episode? I liked and hated it, both at the same time. So yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>